I'm seeing more and more in our practice of what we call drugged driving, which includes drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, amphetamines, heroin, LSD. But then there are less obvious drugs that we're seeing more and more of as being charged as criminal offenses. You know, quite often we turn on the TV and we see prescription drugs being advertised, but very few people realize the trouble such prescription drugs can get them in with the law. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I practice law and I also write a blog called Law Sites. And my co-host, J. Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to be talking about driving while intoxicated laws. But before we introduce today's topic, uh, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is an online practice management platform for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. I also want to uh, just take a note, a moment to uh, encourage our listeners to check out the Legal Talk Network website where they've been... Uh, uh, producing a, and publishing a series of special reports. In particular, you're going to find 32 interviews with leaders from the American Bar Association discussing their various divisions, committees, and programs. These interviews were recorded live at the 2015 ABA Mid-Year Meeting recently down in Houston, Texas, and are loaded with uh, all sorts of useful information. So be sure to check those out at the uh, LegalTalkNetwork.com. Well, driving while intoxicated is a serious and dangerous offense. There are many substances that the law considers illegal to be uh, under the influence of while driving, but uh, they are not all necessarily treated equally. When we hear the terms DUI or DWI, we probably usually think about alcohol, maybe also marijuana, but it might surprise you to learn that there are a number of legal prescription drugs that can be used to enhance attention or focus, can also lead to convictions. Uh, even more surprising, you may not even need to be behind the wheel of an automobile to be brought up on charges. Uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, some of the parts of uh, DUI law that you may not be aware of, some of the things you may not know about it, uh, and some of the things that may surprise you about it. Joining us today to discuss this topic, we have two guests. Uh, let me first introduce Mr. Douglas Cans. Uh, Douglas is the founder of the Cans Law Firm, a Minnesota-based criminal defense firm. He has over 18 years of experience defending individuals charged with DUI or DWI offenses. He's been selected as a top 100 lawyer in Minnesota by the National Trial Lawyers and a top 100 DWI attorney by the National Advocacy for DUI Defense. He's routinely asked for his analysis on ABC and NBC news affiliates. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Douglas Cans. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. And also joining us today is Robert Ambrose. Robert is uh, an associate attorney with the Cans Law Firm in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, among other criminal areas, he practices with Doug Douglas Cans in DWI and DUI defense. 
as well as the expungement of criminal records. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Robert Ambrose. Thanks, Bob. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, Douglas Cans, I wanted to start with you. And uh, you know, one of the things that uh, intrigued us about the topic is uh, the, the various substances that can get someone into DWI trouble. I mean, I think most people think of this primarily as an alcohol-related offense. Uh, but in fact, uh, that's not the case. Can, can you give me a an idea of, of some of the kinds of substances that can get somebody into trouble under a DWI law? Certainly. You're right. It was originally, most people think of it as just alcohol-based, um, but I'm seeing more and more in our practice of more of what we call drugged driving, which you know includes driving a motor vehicle, having consumed some kind of narcotic or drug. The most common drugs we all think of that we will categorize as controlled substance or legal substances or, you know, drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine. Methamphetamine's a large one because uh, we see quite a bit of that. Um, amphetamines, heroin, um, LSD. I mean, these are the common drugs. I think most the average person would conclude that if uh, you consume one of these drugs, then that's going to be illegal. But then <clears throat> there are less obvious drugs that we're seeing more and more of, especially in our state, being charged with criminal offenses. You know, quite often we turn on the TV and we see prescription drugs being advertised, but uh, very few people realize the trouble such prescription drugs can get them in with the law. One of the drugs, um, we'll just give you an example, sleep aids. I know I've had personal experience defending people that have been charged with DWI offenses after taking a sleep aid. And, you know, some of the more common ones we think of, um, brand names like Ambien, Lanista, these are substances that um, taken have un sometimes unpredictable um, consequences or reactions, I should say, after taking them, um, especially a drug like Ambien. And um, I know in my practice, I've encountered people have taken a sleep aid and then not realizing kind of what occurs after that memory loss or what have you, and they find themselves behind the wheel, um, say they're pulled over for some driving conduct, they're given a, say, a blood or urine test, and there's an indication of, say, one of these sleep aids in their system, well, they could be charged with a crime, especially here in Minnesota, of driving under the influence of a prescription drug. And, you know, in cases like that, the prosecutor must prove that, say, a drug like Ambien or Lanista or another sleep aid, that one, the, the substance was in their system. And again, that can be done by a blood or urine test as evidence, but also the second prong would be that they were under the influence at the time of driving. So we're seeing more and more of that. But, you know, Bob, there are other drugs, too, that um, are common that people have or take as part of prescription. Uh, let's I mean, one of the substances, let's talk about codeine. I mean, quite often you might get a prescription for cough syrup that has codeine in it. Well, in Minnesota, in most, a lot of states, that's a controlled substance, codeine. And if it's in your system, specifically in Minnesota, any drug like codeine, codeine excuse me, which is, could be a, is a controlled two substance in Minnesota, but any substance like codeine, which is a controlled one or two, the prosecutor doesn't even need to prove you're under the influence to get a conviction for a DWI. You know, if the drug, a controlled one or two substances, is even in your system while driving, the prosecutor need only show that 
the individual is driving a motor vehicle and had the substance in their system while driving. They don't need to prove they're under the influence. So the, that's that kind of gives you an indication the difference between drugs. But it, we, when I started talking about like the more common ones, we think of like cocaine, methamphetamine, amphetamine. That's also obviously a controlled one or two substances, and they're in your system as well. Um, most states, specifically Minnesota. Uh, prosecutor doesn't need to show you're under the influence at the time just that that substance was in your system. So people have to be really careful when they get a prescription drug from their physician that they look at what's in it and if uh, something that looks to be a controlled substance they should do a little research and just make sure they're careful and if they're going to take this prescription drug you know maybe not drive. That would be probably the best advice. That's, that's really interesting. And I suppose we should take, a, take this opportunity to remind our listeners that the DUI laws do vary from state to state. And so uh, what is the law in, in Minnesota might not necessarily be the law in, in another state. But, but I, 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 I'm no expert in this area, but I know that there certainly are a, a lot more similarities than there are differences, I think, among these laws uh, from state to state. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, that's correct. I mean, especially when we're dealing with the only distinction with states may be uh, whether, I mean, if you have a substance like codeine or something in your system, the states, states may differ as to what the prosecutor's burden to show, whether they have to show it's in your system or they have to actually show you're under the influence. But I think with drugs controlled one or two, I think most states are conforming to, you know, they can't have those in the system because they're that dangerous of drugs that they're per se dangerous or you're per se under the influence if it's in your system, which isn't always accurate, but I think that's where we're heading with the law. Bob Ambrose, let me ask you, uh, there was a news story uh, recently with uh, uh, actress, television actress Amanda Bynes getting uh, arrested for DUI over having uh, Adderall in her system. Uh, and Adderall is, of course, a drug that we think of as something that, that makes you more alert and, and more aware is Adderall among these drugs that, that Douglas was just talking about? And what, what's the status of, of that? Yeah, Bob, Adderall is an amphetamine, and most amphetamines included in the list of substances leading to DWIs, in part because there's a potential for abuse of those type of drugs, and people not taking Adderall in accordance with their prescription. Additionally, the type of effects Adderall can have on somebody. In low doses, um, you know, Adderall is taken for such things as ADHD, and that may have few effects on a person's cognitive functions and ability to drive a car when they take it in a low dose, maybe in a prescription. But if they start to abuse that prescription um, and they take it in a higher dose, that's more likely to produce, like, aggressive-style driving, similar to people that may be driving under the influence of cocaine or meth, you know, those drivers may be restless and, you know, more aggressive or fidgety and irritable, and that can be you know, pretty dangerous when behind the wheel. In the case, Bob, you talk about with Amanda Bynes, the actress, who was arrested in the fall of 2014 for a DWI while she was actually on probation, um, she admitted to taking Adderall at the time for ADHD. And I think there may have been some other evidence that she was under the influence of some other drugs at the time as well, but the prosecution in that case could only find a small amount of Adderall in her system. So they didn't continue with any kind of prosecution with her from that. But I think that's kind of as you, we get into more abuse and misuse of prescription drugs, 
that's the potential problems that they may have to encounter is that whether somebody's actually under the influence of it or is if it more of a per se law with just having it in the system is illegal. And from our experience, more times often than not, they have to actually prove, you know, under the influence without just if somebody has a prescription to Adderall, um, you know, that may be a defense for the per se, but, you know, they have to actually prove that somebody's under the influence of it. And, you know, I think uh, a, a common misperception among a lot of lay people perhaps is that under the influence means that you're drunk or incapacitated. But but legally, we we actually define under the influence really not by how you're functioning physically or mentally, but by, uh, at least in terms of alcohol, how much alcohol you have in your system. Uh, the, the standard, as I understand it, across all 50 states is, is that you uh, have to have a, a 0.08 uh, level of uh, uh, blood alcohol content in order to be considered uh, uh, drunk uh, for purposes of the law. So what does that mean in terms of a, 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 a layman's understanding of this? Douglas, can you give us a sense of how, how a layman would even have a sense of when they might be in, in the danger zone here? Well, yeah, I mean, people have to be careful because there is a perception that, and you're seeing the sprout up of these portable breath tests that people seem are marketed um, and people buy to try to judge what their alcohol level would be, which I think is dangerous because they're not accurate tests. But the problem is, you know, in most states, you don't have, I mean, 0.08 is the per se under the influence. In other words, if you test a 0.08, the prosecutor doesn't have to go out and show someone's under the influence. It's enough to have the test admitted or offered as evidence and admitted as an 08 without having to show um, that the person's also under the influence because it's assumed per se that in an 08 you are under the influence of alcohol. But what we see quite a bit is um, people that aren't testing an 08, even at an 07, uh, in 06, I mean, in my law firm, we've had cases in 05 and 06 where people didn't test a legal limit, but they're still charged with under the influence of alcohol. Again, in those cases, the prosecutor has to go out there and prove that at that level they were under the influence. Well, that's a problem then, isn't it? If you don't have the blood level, the, the blood alcohol content, uh, you're, you're relying on what? Wobbly walking and... Uh... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what you're relying on what we call these field sobriety tests. And clearly, um, when prosecutors charge that out, they realize it's, it's an uphill battle. But a lot of cases go to trial based on that evidence. Field sobriety tests, the most common uh, that we hear about, uh, stand on one leg, you know, for 30 seconds, walk heel to toe. Which I can't do stone sober, so... Uh. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because if you think about these tests, and if you've ever done them, and I've been part of groups that have done them without drinking, they're very difficult. For instance, you know, the this, this stand on one leg. Uh, usually in those cases, the officer will have you put your arms to your side. Well, if you were going to try to maintain balance on one leg, naturally you'd have your arms out. Having your arms to your side doesn't help you balance. So in my opinion, a lot of these tests are actually designed for failure. But that's what, you know, going back to your question, if if they have a, a, a test that's less than a .08, they're going to have the officer take the stand, and they're going to this the prosecutor being asked the officer, you know, how did they perform on this test? What clues did you see? 
and that will be their evidence. You know, they can still argue that the person tested was an 06 or 05 or anything under an 08, but it really comes down to the field sobriety test, which as a defense lawyer is helpful to me because, you know, I can poke holes in that through cross-examination because there's a lot of problems with these tests. But nevertheless, a lot of people, as I said, under this misconception that, hey, you know, if I'm not an 08, I can't be charged or convicted, and it's, it, it's not true. So people have to be real careful. The, how you get to an 08, people are different, weight, size. You know, I represent a lot of people, and that uh, I would think after two or three glasses of wine, they wouldn't be at that level, but they are. So it's really a lot of physiology and a lot of way people's chemical makeup is how their alcohol level is going to be. I mean, you'll hear some experts say, well, the average glass of wine, you know, as a six-ounce glass of wine will get you to a .06. You know, it, there's no exact science to it, but I think people have to be conscious that if they're going to go out and drink socially, just to be very careful and, needless to say, you know, arrange for a sober ride. We need to take a very short break. We're going to be back in just uh, a few moments to talk more about uh, DUI laws. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio, Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Abrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away today. We're talking with Douglas Cans and Robert Ambrose from the Cans Law Firm in Minnesota about DUI laws. Uh, and we were just talking about the, the measurement uh, for uh, intoxication for alcohol. And Robert Ambrose, I, I wanted to ask you about other substances. I mean, we've been talking here about prescription drugs, uh, even uh, marijuana, other illegal substances. How do uh, police officers or, or uh, law enforcement officers measure uh, the level of intoxication with those kinds of substances? Well, I think the main thing is here in Minnesota, any amount of controlled substance, Schedule One or Two, which is the cocaine, the meth, the heroin, any amount of that in somebody's blood, and we actually have urine testing too in Minnesota, if that shows up at all, that's just a DWI or DUI. Well, how do they get there? I mean, they don't have the, they don't have the breathalyzers, that a lot, and I think a lot of police have, have easy access to breathalyzers for alcohol, right? But they, they don't as easily have equipment available to test for these other things, do they? No, they don't. And for Minnesota's purposes, they'll either do a blood or a urine sample, and most commonly a blood test. Um, we have heard that there are some companies, you know, one in Vancouver that's trying to get a breathalyzer for marijuana and get that approved and working on that. But right now it's mainly 
blood and urine testing, especially here in Minnesota. Now, marijuana, for example, just the presence of marijuana or THC in somebody's system is not necessarily under the influence. What they'll do in Minnesota is test for three different things when they're looking to see if somebody had marijuana in their system when they were driving. The first one is commonly known as just THC, and scientifically they call it Delta-9, and that's just the primary substance that causes impairment. You know, that indicates usually recent use within a couple of hours that somebody ingested or smoked marijuana prior to driving. What happens chemically is that THC will quickly convert to what's called hydroxy-THC, and that's a metabolite of THC that doesn't exist in somebody's bloodstream for very long. So that rarely actually shows up on any kind of toxicology report because it quickly converts to what's called carboxy-THC. And that's kind of the most common one that can stay in somebody's system for up to 28 to 30 days. It's an inactive THC metabolite that does not cause impairment, and experts will testify to that. But interestingly enough, a state like Colorado, I believe, has passed a law where there is a threshold for THC, and I think they have it as 5 nanograms or more of THC per milliliter is illegal in Colorado. And that is, I think, kind of what states that are legalizing marijuana may be going towards is that they can have some set level of THC as a concentration level be equivalent to the 0.08 for alcohol. There was a study that came out just last week for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that that concluded that drivers, uh, marijuana effectively doesn't really impair drivers. The drivers who use marijuana were effectively no more likely to crash than those who had not used any drugs or alcohol at all. Uh, Given some of the liberalization uh, of laws in states such as Colorado and elsewhere, and and I believe even Minnesota, uh, around marijuana, do you think uh, this issue will be revisited by, by legislatures or should be revisited as to whether uh, marijuana even does impair driving? Yeah, I think so. You know, one state in particular, Arizona, had a case go up to their Supreme Court challenging a law that just said any amount of THC, specifically that carboxy THC, the inactive metabolite, does not cause impairment. And they said, you can't just charge somebody with a DWI there in Arizona just for having the mere presence of that metabolite in their system. But I think also law enforcement officials are starting to be trained as drug recognition experts, or they refer to them as DREs. And there are certain kind of tests they can have people perform to see if they are under the influence of a drug at that time. And I think as more states start to legalize marijuana, that will be something they have to adjust to. Uh, Douglas Cans, I, I understand uh, that you were uh, featured recently on a news story where a, a man was fighting a DWI charge that he received while driving a Segway. Uh, again, I, I think another common misperception about these laws is that you need to be behind the wheel of, a, of an automobile. Uh, what, in fact, uh, is the case? What can you be driving? <laughs> what are the scope of types of vehicles somebody could be driving and be charged under a DUI law? An interesting story here. Uh, just the segue, most laws, well, not every state, they, states really do differ in how they categorize a motor vehicle. 
Uh, here in Minnesota, we categorize a motorized vehicle as something that is self-propelled, that generally would rely on some sort of engine. The Segway, although self-propelled, the uniqueness of that case is I think our Court of Appeals in that decision ultimately decided that the Segway is not something naturally designed to be on a highway or a roadway, which are, is definition of a DWI, generally has to be on a public roadway or a highway. And since these vehicles weren't necessarily designed for that, um, then it wasn't a, a motor vehicle for the purposes of a DWI. But, you know, like in Minnesota, when it's self-propelled, I mean, you could obviously a bicycle is not self-propelled. But I had a case once where it was basically a bicycle, and the defendant had put a little engine on the bicycle to basically make it like a moped, and that was a motor vehicle. Um, we had an interesting case here in Minnesota not too long ago. It involved a, uh, a person charged with DWI in a lazy or in a sofa chair. Uh, I remember so, reading about that. that you was remember that? Fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I think my understanding of the story was there were this individual lost his license, maybe there's some prior offenses, but uh, he created a, put a motor on a chair, on a sofa chair. And I think the officer had seen him going down the road on the sofa chair. Well, guess what? Uh, sofa chairs are innocent, but you put an engine on and it's self-propelled, <laughs> it's, it's all of a sudden it becomes a motor vehicle. You know, and then you have uh, some states like Kentucky where you recently uh, you had a man who was charged with a DWI on a horse. Uh, now, <laughs> That would never happen in Minnesota because, again, it has to be a self-propelled motor vehicle, and that wouldn't be included. However, it, like I said, it just illustrates um, every state is different. I guess a horse, general horse, generally a horse weighs about a thousand pounds, so I guess that there's some danger in that. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think uh, most states, if it's certainly self-propelled, it is a motor vehicle, and some states are more liberal than that when they define a motor vehicle. And and what must the driver be doing? I, I, I seem to, again, I don't practice in this area, but I, I seem to recall reading about some cases uh, in which people have been charged with DUI, even though they were sitting in their car with the engine turned off, but they were behind the driver's, in the driver's seat, behind the steering wheel, maybe taking a nap by the side of the road or something like that. Can, can you be charged with DUI when you're not actually operating the vehicle? In Minnesota, you can, and it drives us crazy because we have a, there's so many cases and you know, it's one of the things people have a hard time grasping. I understand because as a defense lawyer for 20 years, I, I have a hard time grasping it sometimes. We have something called physical control where, you know, say you, you're, you're parked in your car and you decide to, you're a smoker and you decide to have a cigarette and it's like Minnesota, very cold here in the winter and you have the heater on, you want to stay warm so you have the car running. Well, you know, in Minnesota, if you had been drinking alcohol or an influence of drugs or a controlled substance in your system, even though you weren't driving, you're just sitting in the vehicle and it could be in the driveway of your house, that is considered your physical control of your motor vehicle. And uh, that is against the law and it's charged as a DWI. So in Minnesota, you don't have to actually be driving. You just have to be in physical control or driving. And people sometimes will think, well, does the key have to be the ignition? Not necessarily. Uh, there's a substantial number of cases. If you have the keys in your hand, in your pocket, and you're sitting in the car, you could be charged with a DWI. Um, if you're, you brought up sleeping, many cases like that. If you're sleeping in your car, uh, whether it's running or the keys are in your pocket, you could be tra- charged with DWI and physical control. The idea and the rationale although I don't understand it, what the law is, well, someone could wake up, could put the keys in the car and easily propel the vehicle forward. 
you know, I, I think the idea behind the law was, hey, if we can't catch them driving just because we didn't see it doesn't mean they weren't. I, I think inherent is inherent in the law is that. So if an officer comes upon someone, but they weren't driving, but they're parked on the side of the road, uh, you know, let's not let them get away with the DWI because more than likely that's how they got here. And so let's come up with the idea of physical control. But it is, it just, yeah, as lawyers here, we kind of sometimes beat our heads against the wall on fiscal control issues. So, Bob, if, uh, if I have been out drinking uh, and I get in my car and I'm on my way home and I get pulled over by a police officer, what should or shouldn't I do? Well, you shouldn't make any kind of statements or admissions in our experience, but you also want to be cooperative at the same time. Um, I believe there's some states that have roadblocks. I think it may be... Florida is one of them. I remember reading that an attorney would prepare a statement for the cops and put their license and insurance and put that in a Ziploc bag and hang it out their window at the roadblock, basically telling them that they're not going to um, agree to do any of their tests or anything so they don't have to roll down their window to talk to the officer because a lot of times the officer wants to say that you smell like the odor of an alcoholic beverage. Um, so one thing is, I mean, I think always good to be cooperative here in Minnesota, you do have what's called a limited right to counsel before taking a breath, blood or urine test. So you can call an attorney and get advice on what to do. Um, obviously as an attorney, we're going to say call an attorney, but definitely if somebody's never been involved with that situation before, it's a good idea to reach out to a lawyer. And Bob, if I can elaborate yeah. on that, yeah, just go briefly. ahead, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to be cooperative because if you're not cooperative, uh, things can go sour really quick if you're in a situation where you're in contact with the police. But being cooperative doesn't mean you have to provide them evidence. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have a right against self-incrimination, and people have to understand anything you say will be held against you. It could be offered in court at, a trial, at trial against you, prove your guilt. So, you know, saying things if you're pulled over, uh, like how much you had to drink, how you feel. Those are all incriminating statements you don't have to make. You do have a right to remain silent. And uh, in field sobriety tests, field sobriety tests are all basically are sort of like statements offered against you at trial to prove that a DWI case you're under the influence. You don't have to agree to do field sobriety tests. And if you don't, it can't be offered against you to prove you're under the influence. Now, understanding that if you don't agree to take field sobriety tests, that generally will give the officer probable cause or basis to arrest you and take you in maybe for further testing, but nevertheless, it's not providing evidence to the state. So while it's always a good idea to, um, to be cooperative, uh, not talk back to the police, certainly not get physical in any manner, but at the same time, you, you have to understand that uh, you do have a right against self-incrimination. You don't have to do these things that will be used against you later in time. Uh, yeah, I may be... Uh, mis- misstating uh, Massachusetts law, my, my understanding in Massachusetts, where I am, is, is that uh, if somebody declines to take the blood alcohol test, uh, they can do that, but they automatically, there's an automatic suspension of their driver's license associated with that. Right. And and just to be clear, I was talking about field sobriety tests. Yeah. Most law, there, there are states like Minnesota, once you're under arrest and transported to a police department where they want to extract a chemi- you know, some sort of chemical evidence, whether it be blood, breath, or urine, as evidence in your case at a .08, well, in Minnesota, yes, you do not, if you refuse that, the blood, breath, or urine, they will charge you with the crime of refusal. 
there are only a few states that still criminalize refusal. I think most states will take a stronger action against your driving license in the longer period of revocation or cancellation. But in Minnesota, we criminalize it. So if you do refuse to submit to a blood, breath, or urine, assuming the officer had probable cause to arrest you, they will charge you with a crime of refusal. And to add more to that, in Minnesota, they'll charge you with a more serious crime. So generally, if you're a first-time DWI offender without any prior history, alcohol-related revocations or DWIs, the first offender is charged with a misdemeanor, which is a lower level of offense, carrying a maximum penalty, 90 days in jail, $1,000 fine, normally not looking at jail. But if you refuse the test, you're charged with a more serious offense called a gross misdemeanor, where the maximum penalty is all of a sudden a $3,000 fine and or one year in jail. So we're unique in that sense, and we just had a um, case go for before our Supreme Court here in Minnesota, which is hotly contested of whether they can criminalize refusal in this state. Um, an argument was is made that um, you need a warrant to take blood, breath, or urine, and how can you criminalize refusing something the state couldn't have done without a warrant? And that case was called State v. Bernard, and unfortunately the, the Supreme Court disagreed with the defense position. And... Uh, surprisingly enough, they found that uh, the uh, the test, blood, breath, or urine, is basically, I think in that case, and Bob and Craig Memorial's breath, it's a search incident to a lawful arrest. Uh, therefore, it's okay. They didn't need a warrant to begin with. So that's kind of well, what's that, going on. That's really interesting. Well, we, we are uh, near the end of our time for the show. Uh, before we close out, I want to give each of you an opportunity to give us your closing thoughts uh, on the topic and also to let our listeners know how they could follow up with you uh, if they'd like to uh, continue the discussion uh, offline. Uh, Bob Ambrose, uh, let's let's start with you. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Again, I, thanks for having me on the show. Um, with drug driving or driving under the influence of drugs, I think the one kind of change I would like to see is move away from the, the per se laws or anything that says that just having a certain substance in your system means you're under the influence. And I'd like to see more of just making prosecutors prove that somebody's actually under the influence of that substance. But yeah, if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can contact me by email. It's rhambrose, A-M-B-R-O-S-E, at canslaw.com. And our phone number is 952-835-6314. Thanks again. Thank you very much. And Douglas Cairns, your final thoughts today. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I want to underscore with people listening is be very careful. There are many substances that people consume, either part of prescription, uh, that they just have to be aware of what they're taking and just be aware of what the laws in their state say about having that drug and then getting behind uh, the wheel of a motor vehicle. There are drugs that people don't even think of that uh, seem like innocent drugs, but if you don't have a prescription for it, even a drug like testosterone in this state is a steroid, if you don't have a prescription for it and you're in possession of it, it could even be a felony. So it just underscores people have to be very careful and diligent in what they're putting in their bodies. Um, and again, if people want to reach out to me or learn more about Bob and I and our firm, uh, our website is www dwiminneapolislawyer.com. We also have a blog there, which we blog routinely about different issues regarding alcohol-related driving offenses throughout the country. Well, thank you again to both of you. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today and to uh, share your thoughts on this topic. We've been talking with 
Douglas Cans and Robert Ambrose of the Cans Law Firm. And uh, that uh, about brings us to the end of our show today. This is Bob Ambrosi. We uh, thank all of you for listening to the program today. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.